The time has come for us to return to the Gospel of John. So I invite you to open your Bibles up to the Gospel of John. If you did not bring a Bible, we have blue Bibles under some of the seats available for you to utilize. We are going to be in chapter 3 once again, but this morning we're actually going to finish chapter 3. Our text is going to be verses 31 to 36. Last time we covered verses 22 to 30. That was the previous section we covered. And in that section, we caught a glimpse of that period of time during which the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist overlapped. So we'll first do some review in order to bring ourselves back into the flow of the Apostle John's narrative and to establish the context for this morning's passage. And I'm going to take a little time to build up to that. So don't worry, I'm front-loading it intentionally. After Jesus had publicly appeared and presented himself in Jerusalem during the Passover festival by clearing the temple and while he was in Jerusalem performing signs in the midst of the people, he then went out into the Judean countryside with his disciples and had them baptize people just as John the Baptist had been doing and was even at that time doing elsewhere in a region north of them. This is what we covered last time. And by doing this at the outset of his ministry, Jesus was affirming and spreading the divinely appointed work of John the Baptist in calling the people of Israel to repent and to be baptized as a sign of their repentance in order that they might be prepared for the coming kingdom of God. The disciples of John the Baptist did not see it this way some of them at least. Rather, they wrongly saw Jesus as a rival who was interfering with John's ministry, and they were concerned because it seemed that many people were now going to Jesus rather than to John. However, we saw that John corrected them by reminding them that the very purpose of his ministry was to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of their Messiah, John had already identified Jesus as the greater one for whom they had been waiting, and he had borne witness that the Spirit of God was upon Jesus, as foretold in the scripture of the Messiah, and that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Therefore, the shift of the people's attention towards Jesus indicated to John that the goal of his divinely appointed ministry was being achieved. He was rejoicing that the people were now going to hear from Jesus. And he said that Jesus must go on increasing while he himself faded into the background. Although John had come first in time with regard to when his ministry began, it was Jesus who was first in rank and that to an infinite degree. This fact was missed by those disciples who had remained with John and not followed after Jesus after John had borne witness concerning him. John reminded them it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. 
John certainly had a very important, important, divinely appointed role to play. He was the voice predestined to cry out to the people of Israel to prepare the way of the Lord. And he was the witness who testified by the Spirit of God that Jesus was the Spirit-anointed Son of God. In light of his testimony, the only right course of action for anyone then was to go to Jesus and listen to him, learn from him, follow after him. John the Baptist ministered to the people of Israel by preparing the way and then showing the way And the way was Jesus, the Son of God. The closing statement from John was, He must increase, but I must decrease. It is at this point that the Apostle John, as the narrator, steps in to emphasize and expand upon John the Baptist's testimony concerning the supremacy of Jesus. Similar to what we have in, in what we saw in verses 16 through 21, which, as I explained in a previous sermon, are more likely the Apostle John's words to his readers rather than the continuation of Jesus' words to Nicodemus, as the ESV has them translated. But similar to what we have in verses 16 to 21, what we have in verses 31 to 36 is another evangelistic appeal from the Apostle John to his readers in light of the account that they had just read. Once again, John did not want his readers to miss the call to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, so that they might be saved. It's the purpose of his gospel, which we read clearly stated at the end. And keep in mind that the primary audience that John was targeting with his gospel, primary, Uh, This gospel that he wrote towards the end of the first century, his primary targeted audience were Jews and Jewish proselytes who who had yet to believe that the promised Christ spoken of in the scriptures was Jesus of Nazareth. Although they were religious, their faith was deficient because it lacked Jesus. The only one who could save them from their sins reconcile them to God, and give them the gift of righteousness, everlasting life, and the hope of glory in the coming kingdom of God. Pretty deficient. Several decades after the Christ had come and made atonement for the sins of his people through his death, burial, and resurrection, and over a decade after the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans, John was seeking to evangelize Jews who remained content with their deficient faith. As if the destruction of the temple wasn't a sign enough that the old covenant had become obsolete and the new covenant had been inaugurated because the Christ had indeed come. Of course, John's message applies to everyone whose faith is deficient due to their lack of a saving knowledge of and trust in Jesus Christ, directly applicable even to today. So in the first half of chapter 3, we read the account of Jesus' testimony to the Pharisee Nicodemus, who was one of the leading religious teachers in Israel and a member of the ruling council in Jerusalem. And then we read John's explanation and evangelistic appeal. 
An important message John was getting across to his readers, to his Jewish readers, was that it was not enough for one to be a religiously devout Jew who strove to obey the law of God and even held to the strict traditions of the elders. One had to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, in order to be saved from the coming judgment of God. What did he say to Nicodemus? After all that Nicodemus had accomplished in his life, after all of his devotion, in his old age, in his prominence, as a devout religious leader, he tells him, one cannot see the kingdom of God unless he's born from above. Right? Unless one is born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's basically telling Nicodemus, all of this amounts to nothing, does not justify you before God. So we have this message that the readers can uh, get out of that account. It's not enough to, to keep the law of God or strive to obey the law and keep the tradition of the elders. One needs to believe in Jesus, the Son of God. John wrote, whoever believes in him, in verse 18 of chapter 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Then, in the second half of chapter 3, we read John's account of John the Baptist's testimony to his lingering disciples who wrongly had a higher view of him than of Jesus and therefore chose to remain with him rather than to follow after Jesus. This account is likewise immediately followed up with an explanation and evangelistic appeal from the Apostle John, which we'll look at this morning. And an important message communicated through this account with John the Baptist and his lingering disciples who missed the point. An important message there is that it was not enough even, even when someone was responsive to John the Baptist's ministry and received his baptism of repentance. That was not even enough. As we will see in verses 31 to 36, the Apostle John once again stressed the fact that one must believe in Jesus, the Son of God, in order to be saved from the wrath of God and to be granted eternal life. He is the one whom you must ultimately listen to, submit to, follow after, and entrust your soul to. Why? John tells us in verse 31 through 36. Here's what he wrote. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom, ha for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
So in this passage, the Apostle John presents to his readers the surpassing greatness and authority of Jesus Christ. If you consider every prophet throughout Israel's history whom God had raised up to deliver his word to his people, Christ surpassed them all. Because unlike them, he came from above. He was not a son of Adam who was raised up. Rather, he is the son of God who was sent down. And he came down from the throne room of heaven. As John wrote in his prologue, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All others are from the earth. John says in verse 31, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Well, that included even John the Baptist, who rightly recognized Jesus' infinite superiority. Earthliness does not have the negative connotations that worldliness does, that term. Earthliness refers to man's limitations rather than to his sinfulness. To say that men are of the earth and thus belong to the earth and speak in an earthly way means that they are limited in their ability to understand and communicate the truths of heaven. And apart from God's revelation, no man can know or speak authoritatively of heavenly truth although many falsely claim to. And even the prophets to whom God revealed his will by means of his word only knew in part and thus prophesied in part. They spoke authoritatively for God, for it was God who spoke through them by his spirits. However, even they were limited in their personal understanding and perception of the heavenly things that God revealed through them. That was not the case with Jesus. He knew in full and could prophesy in full because he is the divine son of God who came down from heaven and therefore had direct firsthand knowledge of the things of heaven. And thus he spoke with ultimate authority. None compared to him. The Apostle John states, He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. John says in verse 32, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And considering that Jesus is the eternal pre-existent Son of God, the credibility and authority of his teaching concerning heavenly things is unsurpassable. What some of the prophets of Israel saw only the slightest glimpses of through visions given to them by God, and what they had heard only the smallest parts of through God's revelatory word to them, 
Jesus had seen and heard in full. Heaven was his original home. And before he came down into the world, he had from eternity past enjoyed face-to-face communion with God the Father in the glories of heaven. And when the Father sent him into the world, he came with the fullness of heavenly knowledge and declared what he had heard directly from the Father. He was indeed the Word of God in the flesh. And yet, John says at the end of verse 32, no one is receiving his testimony. John obviously was speaking in a general sense, as is made clear in the very next verse. John made a similar statement in his prologue, where he wrote of Jesus, he came to the things that were his own, and his own people did not receive him. We can also recall Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus from earlier in chapter 3, in which Jesus said to the religious leader, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you all are not receiving our testimony. When considering the fact that the vast majority of Jews and Gentiles as well, the vast majority of Jews did not embrace the testimony of Christ, neither during the days of Christ's earthly ministry, imagine that with all the miraculous signs confirming who he was, nor in the decades leading up to the time wrote his gospel. Considering that, the vast majority did not receive his testimony. Those who ended up receiving his testimony were so few in number that, by comparison, it seemed as though no one was receiving his testimony. And that's consistent with what we see in the world today. Whenever we see one of those, well, I don't know if it's uh, Barna polls or one of those polls that talk about the percentage of Americans who are Christians. Usually you give that a chuckle, right? You're like, (laughs) I don't think so. We know there's many who profess, but so little truly believe. So little have truly been born from above and have saving faith in Christ. And this is consistent with what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew's Gospel. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the, way, uh, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. However, no matter how it may appear that so few are receiving the testimony of Jesus, Jesus is nonetheless the one who came down from heaven and whose testimony concerning the will and purpose and kingdom of God is the greatest of all. His testimony is the greatest of all. John says in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now to set your seal to something 
is a figurative way of saying that you are declaring something to be correct, true, or genuine. One commentator explains that in the ancient world, if a man wished to give his full approval to a document, such as a will or an agreement or a constitution, he affixed his seal to the foot of it. The seal was his sign that he agreed with this and regarded it as binding and true. Now, sometimes we see that with a little wax, drip, 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 got the little seal, press it. It bears my seal. I am authenticating this. I certify this. I approve of the contents. So picture a document containing the following written declaration. God is true. Receiving the testimony of Jesus is the seal by which you certify this declaration. In other words, if you truly believe that God is true, then you must receive the testimony of Jesus. You can't claim one without the other. To receive the testimony of Jesus is to affirm the truthfulness of God. And to reject the testimony of Jesus is to deny the truthfulness of God. So really, the ultimate question for anyone who claims to love God, to know God, to worship God, is what do you do with Jesus? What do you think of him? What do you believe concerning him? Have you received his testimony? So receiving the testimony of Christ is to affirm the truthfulness of God, rejecting his testimonies to deny the truthfulness of God. Why? John explains in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Now with regard to the second statement in this verse, he gives the spirit without measure. The text is ambiguous as to who it is who gives the Spirit without measure and to whom the Spirit is given, whether it is God the Father giving the Spirit to Christ or Christ giving the Spirit to his followers. However, so there might be some differences of interpretation there, but based on John's explicit statement in the very next verse, that the Father has given all things to the Son, a contextual clue there, it seems most reasonable to assume that God the Father is also the subject in the final statement in verse 34, with the statement in verse 35 expanding upon it. God the Father gave Jesus, the incarnate Son, the Holy Spirit, without measure. That is, without limit. There was no limit to the extent to which the Spirit empowered Jesus. One commentator explains that by possessing the Spirit in unmeasured fullness, Christ was equipped to provide the highest revelation of the Father to men. The Spirit remained upon him, and he spoke the words of God. 
One commentator explains it this way, unlike human teachers whose words sometimes agree with divine truth and sometimes do not, Jesus always spoke in complete harmony with the Father. See, none can compare to him. Another commentator explains this, puts it this way. Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does, that to believe Jesus is to believe God. Conversely, not to believe Jesus is to call God a liar. Later in John's gospel, we we will read the following declaration from Jesus himself. He said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Why? For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The only right response to Jesus, then, is to receive his testimony. And receiving his testimony means believing his testimony, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, through whom sinners may be forgiven and reconciled to God, and in whom we may receive the gift of eternal life and the hope of resurrection unto glory. Not only did God the Father give Jesus Christ, his Son, the Spirit without measure, but John says in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John reminds us that Jesus is not just a prophet to whom we must listen, but the Son of God whom we must worship. Worship, ascribing ascribing worth to, declaring one is worthy and he is the most worthy. All things have been given into his hand. If the Father loves him and has given all things into his hand, then the only right response to Jesus is to love him as well and to surrender all to him. Everything is his. The starting point of that response to Jesus is faith. That is, truly believing in him and receiving his testimony as absolute, divinely authoritative truth. That brings us to the conclusion of John's evangelistic appeal. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So in this verse, John presents 
two distinct paths. One marked by faith in Christ, and the other marked by disobedience to Christ through unbelief. Lack of trust in Him. We all start out in life on the path of unbelief. So this isn't, we're neutral, and now we got a path. Am I going to choose to be evil and to harden my heart against God? Or am I going to choose the righteous path? The reality is, is we all start out in life on the path of unbelief. We are born in sin. We are born spiritually dead and separated from God. Our hearts are bent away from righteousness and towards rebellion against God. That's why Scripture can say every intention of the thought of our hearts is evil continually because there is a bent away from righteousness and towards rebellion. That is our inclination. We desire to ultimately serve ourselves rather than our Creator, and therefore we suppress the truth by resisting His will and spurning His wisdom and casting aside His commandments and worshiping earthly things and gods of our own imagination rather than Him. Therefore, Because of our willful rebellion against God, His wrath, His settled, holy displeasure against sin, His righteous anger against the wickedness that rebellion is, His wrath is upon the whole of mankind. And it will be poured out in full upon each and every sinner after He is condemned at the final judgment and cast into eternal hell. The wrath of God is upon the whole of mankind. This is the fate of everyone, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who is righteous and does not sin. All are destined to justly perish under the wrath of God. All except Those who believe in the Son of God, Christ Jesus. Because he has made atonement for the sins of his people through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. He laid down his life and took it up again so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. He whom the Father loves and into whose hand the Father has given all things, is pleased to share His impeccable righteousness and imperishable life with those who trust in Him alone to save them from their sins. He has what we need. Born spiritually dead, we need spiritual life. He is the source of life. Born in sin and corruption, Hearts bent towards evil. We lack righteousness. He has impeccable righteousness, which he will credit, impute to those who believe on him. That is the good news. However, notice that it's the warning that the Apostle John chooses as his final word in this appeal to his readers. 
Why? Well, because he was seeking to evangelize unbelieving Jews, and he didn't want them to remain content with their deficient faith. He wanted them to receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The same applies to everyone who reads this gospel today, even here now this morning. If you know of Jesus, but have not yet personally followed after him in obedient faith, a faith that results in transformation of life, a faith that results in a growing love for Christ and his church, and a growing knowledge of and conformity to his will as it is revealed in the scriptures, a faith that endures to the end, then the wrath of God still remains upon you. Superficial professions of faith are not what's safe. The one who genuinely believes on Christ follows after him in obedient faith. And it is a faith that produces the fruit of increasing righteousness and holiness in one's life, of increasing knowledge of and conformity to the will of God, and an increasing love for Christ and his people, the church. So if that's you, if there is a only a loose association with Christ. But you are not personally following after him and submitting your life to him. You need to come to the end of yourself. You need to turn to the one who came down from heaven to seek and to save the lost. The righteous Savior who gave his life and made atonement for the sins of his people. The risen Lord who is seated at the right hand of God and into whose hands God has given all things. Don't make the mistake that John the Baptist's disciples who were lingering made. Don't think very highly of maybe your Christian parents or your your pastor or your youth group leader or maybe Christian authors. Esteem them, but not actually worship and esteem in the ultimate sense, the one whom they say is Lord over all and are testifying is Lord over all. That'll, uh, we'll leave it there, this appeal.